This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Before we start the show, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy Kick-Ass Politics, I hope you'll help us reach our goal of raising our full production budget for 2016 by donating on our website at kickasspolitics.com or at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. I'd also like to thank a few recent donors, Jeremy Walker, Ken Mullen, John B., David Berdis, Jerome Hunt, and Mike Collins for supporting the show. You too can be just like them and donate to the show at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. I'm thrilled to have a man on the show today who's been a participant and witness to more history than Forrest Gump. Most recently, you know Donald Rumsfeld as the Secretary of Defense under President George W. Bush. But you might not know that he has the unique distinction of being both the youngest and the oldest Secretary of Defense, having previously served from 1975 to 1977. As a matter of fact, He's only 10 days shy of Robert McNamara's record as the longest-serving Secretary of Defense in U.S. history. Prior to that, Donald Rumsfeld was a captain in the U.S. Navy and served three terms in Congress representing Illinois' 13th District from 1963 to 1969. He served as the Director of Economic Opportunity and the U.S. Ambassador to NATO under President Richard Nixon and he then served as the White House Chief of Staff and Secretary of Defense under President Gerald Ford, who awarded him the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan appointed him Special Envoy to the Middle East, but he spent most of the 1980s and 90s in the private sector, where he was highly successful as the Chairman and CEO who turned around companies like GDC Earl and Company and General Instrument Corporation. In 2001, President George W. Bush appointed Donald Rumsfeld to his old post as Secretary of Defense, where he oversaw the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and pioneered an ambitious program to modernize U.S. military forces for the 21st century. Since then, he's written two bestsellers, and started the Rumsfeld Foundation, which provides support to our troops, graduate fellows in public policy, and aspiring young leaders in Central Asia. Today, he'll talk about his incredible 50-year career, his thoughts on the current state of U.S. national security, plus we'll talk about his first impressions of Saddam Hussein, the prolific body of memos he's written, his favorite president, what keeps Donald Rumsfeld up at night, and how Winston Churchill inspired him to invent a fun new smartphone app called Churchill Solitaire. Coming up with Donald Rumsfeld in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. 
Today, I'm joined over the phone by former congressman, NATO ambassador, White House chief of staff, special envoy to the Middle East, and two-time secretary of defense, Donald Rumsfeld. You know, gosh, with, with all those titles, I don't even know how to address you. Do you have any preference? Um, in a friendly manner is best. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I, You know, I when I make a reservation at a restaurant, I say it's Don Rumsfeld, <laughs> okay. and uh, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. They and does anyone ever... Congressman, they used to call me ambassador, they used to call me director, they used to call me chief of staff, and... And secretary, I don't know. I was a chief executive of a couple of companies and did that too. <laughs> well, when, it's when, fun. When, well, when you're 83 years old, you you collect a lot of those labels. Yeah, and you know, when you call a restaurant and make a reservation, do they ever hang up on you when you say this is Don Rumsfeld? They ever say, no, "Yeah, right." No, they say you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. You, you don't get any liberals who start lecturing you on the war in Iraq or something, do you? When you call and make a reservation? Oh, you know, maybe not when you make a reservation, but but they're in business, but they're smart. Uh, but you know, maybe one out of a hundred somebody says something occasionally, but it's very rare. Well, well, that's good. Well, you know, I started out with probably five pages of questions you know, and I found myself having to narrow it down because, you know, you're one of those guys who's had such an incredible career over the years and you have the distinction of being both the youngest and oldest Secretary of Defense in U.S. history. And I'm curious because you were Secretary of Defense in 75 to 77 and then, of course, 2001 to 2006. How did the job change? over that 25-year-plus span? Well, I guess I'd cite similarities more than differences. Okay. In every case, the job, like the job of being president, is too big for any one person. And and you you go into those jobs with certain strengths and, and strong suits where you have experience, and, and you, you also go in with certain short suits where you have less experience. And in every instance, the task is to find people who are smarter than you are and have greater experience than you do in certain areas and and, and recruit them and bring them into the activity and, and then work with them and learn from them and guide and direct them towards uh, strategic directions that the president and the country have, have decided are, are the appropriate ones. Yeah, and no drones back then either, huh? Oh, not the first time. You're exactly right. Um, but the second time, we did a great deal. No to, drones, uh, no internet back then? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's right. The internet, I'm told, actually began its 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 earliest iteration with uh, the Defense Department back with the old DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research and Development Program. That right. Well, not according to Al Gore. A, uh, a, a process where scientists could talk to each other. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and the advent of, of social media changes things in terms of the enemy's ability to organize and, and recruit. Um, those things are different. When, when you have strong deterrence uh, and big army, big navy, big air force, it tends to dissuade people because the cost-benefit ratio is disadvantageous to an enemy. So rather than, than threatening your big army, big navy, big air force, they tend to attack you asymmetrically. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we see. They're, the enemy today, the terrorists, are able to 
to function out of ungoverned areas where their task really is not to defend real estate, which historically has been what, what the tensions have been. Second, uh, they tend to be people who don't mind killing themselves and, and think that life, the world's going to be better for them after they've killed themselves. So, so the, the respect for human life is different. But, yeah. but the ability of a terrorist to attack any place, any time of the day or night using any technique uh, means that it's impossible to defend at every location against every conceivable technique at every moment of the day or night. So the, there's a big asymmetrical advantage to the attacker. Right. And, and they obviously are not going to attack armies, navies, and air forces. They're going to go for soft targets. And that's, that's what we see today. Uh, and they're able to, without developing uh, uh, a, a single device to attack, they can take what we develop, what the industrialized world develops, off the shelf and use it against us. So, so there's, we, we, it requires adapting and altering one's approach and, and, and one's focus and one's priorities. Yeah, and in response to that, one of the major accomplishments of your second term as Secretary of Defense, you came out with uh, what was labeled as the Rumsfeld Doctrine which called for high-tech combat systems, reliance on the Air Force, and then small, nimble ground forces. Looking back 10 years later, in 2016 here, um, are there any addendums or amendments that you would add to that? The focus we put on, on developing uh, special operations capabilities by increasing our special operations forces, by bringing the Marines in, by increasing their equipment, by enlarging their authorities. And uh, all of that has proven to be enormously valuable to our country. By dramatically increasing our drone capability is, is another example. Uh, now, what has to be done next? I think the area where we're weakest and were then uh, and remain today weakest is in our ability to understand that this is not going to be one with bullets alone. It's going to require enlisting the the support of moderate Muslims throughout the world and and dealing with the fact that the terrorists have media groups and they're much more effective uh, than we are in in dealing with the media. Uh, our problem is we we avoid scrupulously avoid propagandizing our own people. Uh, the problem we've got, of course, today is that anything that anyone says is immediately broadly heard. It's not restricted to a single audience. So we can't direct our our efforts really very successfully against a specific targeted enemy in terms of social media, in terms of public, affairs in terms of public diplomacy. The second thing is our, our country is not organized uh, well to deal with the public part of competing with the battle of ideas. Mm. I mean, the fact that this administration is totally unwilling to even use the, the phrase radical Islamist um, means that if you're not going to identify the enemy, how can you defeat the enemy? In the Cold War, uh, both political parties over many decades, successive administrations, uh, understood the, the enemy was communism, whether it manifested itself in the Soviet Union or China or, or uh, their, their 
satellite forces in Africa or Latin America, and and people there was uh, persistence over a long period of time, and here it's been very erratic and and un unfocused and uh, I mean calling things workplace violence and being right. unwilling to thinking that we can pretend that there is not a a radical strain in the Muslim faith that is hijacking that religion and 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 being unwilling to go after that strain publicly and and organizationally and through public diplomacy uh, means you can't win if you don't know where you're going any road will get you there you know, one thing that you've talked a lot about over the years is failures of imagination and the costs of that. Looking at the landscape today, are there any areas where you feel that we're not spending enough time thinking about certain things that we should be thinking about? You know, that's a very interesting observation. Uh, the, the book by Roberta Wolstetter titled Pearl Harbor has a foreword in it by a man, uh, a professor named Thomas Schelling, where he talks about surprise and the failure of imagination. And I've sent that around to dozens of people serving in the national security process over the past two or three decades. Um, if you think about it, back to Pearl Harbor, the fear was that the there would be sabotage because there was a large Japanese population living in Hawaii. So they took all the airplanes and brought them together so they could guard them, which made perfect targets when the aircraft, yeah. Japanese aircraft carriers launched airplanes and they destroyed all the aircraft there because they, they failed to understand that the threat was not the sabotage risk, from Japanese Americans, but it was in fact a risk from aircraft carriers. So th today, if we if we pretend what's going on is workplace violence, if we pretend that it's something other than a radical Islamist extremist that is determined to in to attack the nation state concept, and 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 that the best way to deal with that is through moderate Muslims taking back their religion away from the radical Islamists uh, and, and don't support them. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. President el-Sisi in Egypt gave a speech in the most important city in the Arab world, in the most important country in the Arab world, where he said basically what I'm saying. He said that, that, that our religion is being hijacked, in effect. Mm -hmm. No one wrote about it. Most of the people in the world don't know that he said it. But what they do know, those who don't know that he gave that speech, attacking the radical element within his faith, those that do know that are, are silent because they've seen nobody supported him. He put a target on his forehead, and, and, and it's fortunate he's still alive today. His predecessor, Anwar Sadat, was killed by an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. So it took enormous courage for al-Sisi to stand up and say what he said in that city, in that country, to the people he was talking to, a group, group of religious leaders, imams. You know, let's talk about the Middle East, because uh, during the Reagan administration, you were special envoy to the Middle East following the Beirut bombing. And I found an interesting memo titled The Swamp, in which you said, I suspect we ought to lighten our hand in the Middle East 
And then later on, you say, I promise you will never hear me say the U.S. seeks an everlasting peace in the Middle East. Does that still basically hold true for you? Um, and if not, aside from the obvious, you know, 9-11, what's changed in your arithmetic on the Middle East? Well, that cable, which I sent back to Secretary Schultz and to President Reagan, was my very strong impression as I began to deal with with uh, Assad, the father of the current Assad, and with Saddam Hussein and with the leaders in the various Middle East countries. And and I, I have developed over the years a conviction that countries are different. They have different languages. They have different cultures. They have different histories. They have different neighbors. They have different political circumstances. And um, one size doesn't fit all. And the idea that that what we are today is what we characterize as good, and what others are is different or not good, uh, is is a, a narrow, short-sighted, unrealistic perspective. Uh, I say that because the United States today is not what we were before. Uh, we had slaves into the 1800s. We didn't have women vote into the 1900s. Right. And, and 50 or 100 years from now, we're going to be still different. So the template that we have when we use the word democracy is a template that is relevant for today, but it isn't relevant for 50 or 100 years ago in the United States. And I submit it won't be relevant in another 50 years. We'll, we'll continue to evolve. And we ought to be respectful of those differences and not expect our, temp- our current template of democracy to be what is appropriate for countries in the Middle East. I just think that they're going to have to evolve in their own way. We aren't capable of nation building. We don't have the, that, that prescient insight or, or foresight to understand what makes the most sense for them what you can be reasonably sure of is that our current template is not only not going to be what we have in 50 years, but it very likely isn't going to be what's appropriate for other countries in that part of the world. Now, am I for democracy? Yes. Do I believe that everyone having a right to vote and help guide and direct and shape the course of our country is a good thing for us? Yes. Do I believe that the United States of America is the greatest country on the face of the earth and it's not an accident that people want to come here and benefit from the opportunities that exist here? I, I believe all of that. But do I think every other country in the world ought to adopt our current template? No, I don't think it fits. The shoe won't fit there. They're going to have to put, grab their own boots and pull them on and, and, and figure out what makes the most sense for them. And, and just to state the extreme comment, which people will criticize me for, some countries at different stages of their evolution require stronger leadership. I mean, if you think back to our Civil War, my goodness, Abraham Lincoln imposed what, what we would characterize today in, as, as martial law from, in, in, in certain circumstances. Right. Now, do I think that, that a president like al-Sisi in Egypt, uh, given the stresses and strains in that country at a given time, do, do I am I think do I think we ought to break off our military to military relationship with Egypt as some members of Congress and some people uh, contend we should do? No. Is he a, a, a model Democrat? Uh, no. In Egypt, no, he's not. Is he like us? No. 
But is this country different? Yes. And ought he to be doing roughly what he's doing? And ought we to be supporting and maintaining a strong, healthy military-to-military relationship with Egypt? You bet your life I think we should. I think Egypt is a, is a, is an anchor in that part of the world of stability, and that's important. And, and so I think that a, a, if, if a country has got disorder, they need a leader who is probably going to behave in a way that is different from a leader in a democratic country in a peaceful, well-ordered, stable environment. And, and we should accept that, those differences, and not, not think that what we're doing is necessarily what everyone else in the world ought to be doing at this current moment. Interesting. Would you apply that to Vladimir Putin in Russia, too? No, I think he's a brutal dictator, and, <laughs> and uh, I think his country uh, has uh, a very weak economy, except for energy, and, and that his behavior of trying to uh, inflate his importance and his strength by attacking Crimea or threatening uh, other countries in Central Asia um, and, and um, it, it is not good for the people of that country. Well, speaking of dictators, let me ask you about Saddam. You actually met him when you were special envoy to the Middle East under Reagan, and there's a photo of the two of you meeting and shaking hands that a lot of conspiracy theorists make a lot of hay out of. What was your first impression of Saddam Hussein when you met him back then? Well, I was asked to go see him and talk to him. He was in a war with Iran at the time. And uh, we had just gone through, you'll recall, the Iranians taking our hostage from our embassy. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it was a situation where the, our government felt that by talking to him and seeing that we did not have diplomatic relations and wondering if there might be a way that it would make sense for us to modify our country-to-country relationship. So I went in at their request and met with him. And uh, he was a obviously a brutal thug and dictator um, and, and a... Um, a man who ended up over time using chemicals against his own weapon as well as against the uh, correction against his own people, the Kurds, as well as against his own uh, enemy, the Iranians. And um, but but I I went in and met with him and talked to him and and he was uh, somebody you'd want to invite to dinner. Okay, um, going ahead to the second Iraq War, I've always wondered, and maybe you can help me with this. How come he never blinked? Well, that's a good question. And um, first of all, he did have weapons of mass destruction, and he'd used them. A former UN inspector took a team in, and with they they found the precursors that that are necessary to establishing chemical and biological weapons. They found the facility still intact, and they found the cadre of people who had the capability of do it, doing it, and concluded that. Iraq had the ability to reconstitute their uh, supplies of, of chemical and biological weapons in a relatively short period of time. Right. Now, why did he behave the way he behaved? I have no idea. I think he wanted to be seen as strong. He did not want to—what he, he, did he do? He stiffed the United Nations, something like 17 U.N. resolutions right. uh, that where they wanted inspectors to be able to go in and check, and he wouldn't let them. 
Um, he, there's no question he had the stockpiles. And if he destroyed them or buried them or transferred some of them to Syria, I don't know what, what he did with them, but he still had the capability to reconstitute them in a short period of time. Yeah, I, I just wonder, you know, in, in, in that guy's brain, what was it that made him say, I'm going to take this in, right up to the brink and then I'm going to let them invade Iraq rather than sit down to the negotiating table and give up weapons of mass destruction? You know, from a, most dictators have a sense of self-preservation, you know. So. You're exactly right. And, and maybe he just misjudged uh, yeah. President Bush and, and the coalition and the United Nations uh, attitude about his rebuffing the United Nations uh, 15, 16, yeah. 17 times. Yeah, he sure did. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, Donald Rumsfeld will talk about what keeps him up at night, plus he'll discuss the work of the Rumsfeld Foundation and how one of his personal heroes, Winston Churchill, inspired him to create, of all things, a smartphone app. When we come back with Donald Rumsfeld in just a minute. Folks, do you like to read, but you don't have the time? Give audiobooks a try. All those times you spend listening to this podcast, you can also be listening to a great book. You can play it on your drive to work, on a run, in the bathtub, while cooking, or just sitting and enjoying one of those rare stolen moments. And right now, you can download any audiobook you want for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free download of any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Now, some folks might be surprised by your latest venture. You've created a gaming app that people can download for their smartphones and tablets called Churchill Solitaire. You want to tell us about it? No, it's, it's a terrific game. It's challenging. It's strategic. It's, it's uh, a uh, vastly more difficult than, than regular Solitaire because it has two decks, instead of one, and it has a murderer's row up at the top of six cards that need to be played on the aces. And, and, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Winston Churchill taught it to this Belgian, young Belgian diplomat who was in exile uh, when the Nazis occupied Belgium, and he went to England, and, and he taught it to me when I became ambassador to NATO back in 1973, uh, 70, I guess 72 or 32. And, oh, interesting. Um, and I've played it since and, and uh, concluded that with the advent of iPads and iPhones and computers and all the things that have happened since Winston Churchill was alive, that uh, that game should not be lost to the ages. And, uh, and so we put together a team of people who had the technical competence uh, to develop the um, iPad version of it. And I've been amazed what a success it's been. People enjoy it. They've yeah. uh, hundreds of thousands of people have downloaded it. And any money I make off of it is going to military charities to support the troops and 
their families yeah. and the families of the fallen, and any money that the Churchill heritage people get from it will go to the supporting the Winston Churchill legacy. So it's been a lot oh, of great. fun. I've enjoyed it. Oh, that's interesting. So the Churchill family is is involved also. Indeed, I wrote wow. uh, Randolph Churchill, and and uh, they were very interested and eager to uh, advance the name of Winston Churchill, of course, and and the legacy of the what un, arguably was the the greatest statesman of the 20th century, and we've received uh, a good cooperation from them. Um, now, did the family verify the story of uh, Churchill playing Churchill solitaire? Well, it's it's an it, it, there's there's articles that that report that he played solitaire a lot. Hmm. Uh, I saw a clipping from a newspaper the other day where the people on an airplane with him, after he I believe had an illness, uh, some pneumonia or something, and was flying from Africa back to London, and he played solitaire most of the time. Um, the the unfortunately Winston Churchill's gone, and uh, Andre Stark, who taught me, uh, is gone. There, there's a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, the Viscount Stevie D'Avignon, who was also taught the game by Andre de Stark. Um, and uh, he, of course, uh, heard the same version that I did from Andre. But um, the family uh, has been very, very cooperative with us. And uh, well, the, pe- the people who Winston Churchill's not there to say yes, that's right. right. <laughs> but I'm curious. You know, it's interesting. You know, only Churchill would have to would feel the need to improve upon solitaire to tweak solitaire. <laughs> it wasn't challenging point. enough for him, I guess. <laughs> but I, I sent a letter to Andre de Stark uh, talking about the the history of the game and then outlining the game to to ver- validate it and verify it. And he wrote back before he passed away a a long handwritten note, which which we have uh, discussing and and validating what I'd uh, written him. Yeah, and the game's pretty fun. I have to say, it's kind of been my go-to game, and I usually don't play games on my iPhone. But well, use your iPad. It's much easier than an iPhone. Oh, that's a good idea. Who who's your audience for this? Is it good for for older people too, or? Oh my goodness! I'm sure it's good for older people. It's for it. It 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 challenges you. It requires you to think three, four, five steps ahead. And the the more you play it, the more you you see the importance of anticipating and looking around corners. Uh, people who who like challenges, people who want to keep sharp and and uh, compete. You can now compete with on the iPad. You can compete with someone else by challenging them. Yeah, that's cool. I've played with with my wife using little miniature cards, uh, <laughs> and and for years before this this app was developed, and uh, we keep score. And I, I, my wife would like me to to tear up and destroy the records we have, but I think I'll <laughs> end up keeping them in my papers so my children can see how we did. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you are a, quite a prolific writer of memos and record keeper. Uh, somewhere I read that you have 20,000 memos that you wrote during your six years as Secretary of Defense, the second go-around. Um, you did something pretty brave. You archived all of your memos and made them available online. 
And, you know, for me, I'm like, what government person does that? I mean, do you ever regret that when someone comes back and says, well, you know, wait a minute, in this memo 15 years ago, you said dot, dot, dot. No, I've never regretted it. What I did was I, I we took the time, and when I wrote my memoir, Known and Unknown, we every time I mentioned a memo or a, or, or a position I had, I got the memo, and we ended up getting it digitized and putting it on a website, rumsfeld.com, and there are over 4,200 documents, not pages, but documents on that public website, which supports the memos and the the positions I took back then. Now, over life, do you wish you'd made a different decision in some cases or said something differently? Sure. But that wasn't the way it was. It was it was exactly the way I've presented it. Uh, what I've also done is create a private website where I have not 4,000 documents, but uh, tens of thousands of documents that I use for research. Um, and, uh, and, and my attitude about the whole thing is that uh, – You learn as you live, and why shouldn't the things that I've learned over the years uh, be available to others, even though I might have wished I'd said or done something slightly differently? Now, is it true that there are some people who want to pick at things and fuss and complain, uh, go in there and find something that they they can characterize as uh, something they would have done differently? That's fine with me. That's life. Yeah, that's a pretty gutsy move. I don't think a lot of people would have had the the guts to do that. Um, you know, since we're talking about Churchill, is he one of your idols? Oh my goodness, yes. There's no question. I, you know, I was born in 1932, and and so Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill were enormous figures in my life. My father was an older man. He was, I think, 40 years old, and he volunteered to go into World War II and served on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. And I would listen to the radio. This is back in the days before television. And and th- those two people were were enormous, bigger than life. And and the uh the I've read his books and, and thought about him and what he did and the mistakes he made, my goodness, if you think of his career, uh he, he had great high points and, and some valleys. And, and then, of course, was rejected at the end of the war and voted out of office. Life isn't a straight line. It, it's, it's ups and downs. And, and I think that, that a man of that greatness and for people to be able to read about him and think about him is, is a, something that I enjoy particularly about Churchill Solitary is that we've reminded people of someone important and someone historic. You know, he was uh, Secretary of Navy during World War One, and then he was out of the government for quite some time before returning in World War II. You were Secretary of Defense under Gerald Ford, and then you came back. When you returned to the Pentagon under President George W. Bush, did you think about Churchill in that moment? Well, I've, I've thought about Churchill most much of my adult life, uh, but... Uh... I don't know that that I thought about that particular parallel. After I wrote my memoir, Known and Unknown, I wrote a book called Rumsfeld's Rules. And in it are concepts and thoughts from, not from Rumsfeld, but from people an awful lot brighter than I am and more experienced than I am. 
And I think back of, of Churchill's use of the English language and, and how he prided himself on it and, and used it with such power and such force. It seems to me that words matter. We don't lead by command in, in the world, in democracy. We lead by consent. And you can't yeah. gain consent unless you can be persuasive. And you can't be persuasive and, unless you understand your, the people you're dealing with and unless you use the right words that motivate and energize and unless you're believed, which is why untruthfulness or lack of integrity is so corrosive of, of democracy. The proceeds from Churchill Solitaire are going to benefiting our troops and uh, the Rumsfeld Foundation, which apparently does a lot of good. Uh, if you have a moment, do you want to talk about what the Rumsfeld Foundation does? Well, I'd be happy to. We, we have had uh, several focus areas. We, we focus on supporting the troops, to be sure, and their families, and, uh, and, and that's been an important part of, of my life. Uh, second, uh, we support graduate fellows. We find people who need assistance, who are talented and interested in public service and public policy issues, and we, we assist them in achieving uh, masters and PhDs. The other focus is Central Asia. Where, where we uh, have created a fellowship program, and we bring, bring people from the greater Central Asia area, Caucasus, the Central Asia, Mongolia, Afghanistan, to the United States, and, and introduce them to people here who are doing important things. And what's evolved is a network of young professionals in that part of the world uh, who are able, skillful, doing things in academia, business, government, the military, which really never existed before. If you think about it, um, Russia has a strategy for Central Asia, which is not in their interest, and China has a strategy for Central Asia, which is not in Central Asia's interest. And Central Asia is really a collection of 10 countries that are not close. They don't have a lot of economic uh, trade. They don't have a lot of tourism among those countries. Uh, if you want to go from one to another, they generally go through Moscow, Beijing, or Istanbul. Um, and and what's evolving is a, a more of a sense of region and a, a a network of people who are kind of like our White House fellows in the United States, people who are doing important things and, and advancing in their careers. And it's been a lot of fun. We've enjoyed doing it. We do it with Johns Hopkins Central Asia Institute as a cooperative partner. And uh, my wife and I have uh, had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, yeah, and that's interesting because that's not an area of the world that gets a lot of attention. Um, what was it that made you guys decide to focus on Central Asia? Well, it's, it's interesting. I had to spend a lot of time there when I was in, in government. And I'm from Chicago. And when, when the Iron Curtain came down, and uh, we had a lot of people in Chicago from... Czechoslovakia and Poland and Lithuania and one part of that that world, and uh, they had relationships and relatives and interaction and and they reached out to the people in those countries and assisted them in transitioning from authoritarian communist systems to uh, freer political and freer economic systems. But in Chicago or Pittsburgh or Detroit, we we don't have a lot of Uzbeks or Tajiks or uh, people from Kazakhstan. Uh, and and or Turkmans 
And and so I thought to myself, well, maybe what we ought to do is find a way to assist them as they transition from former Soviet republics to freer political and freer economic systems and, and provide that link to the United States that didn't exist. As you properly point out, uh, that part of the world is not even on the radar screen over here. Most of us would have to pull out a map and say, well, where is Kyrgyzstan, for example, or where is Turkmenistan right. or Tajikistan? And uh, it's not an easy journey from communism to a freer political or freer economic system. But uh, maybe we can help smooth that out a bit for them. Yeah, and it's all the more important for someone in the West to be investing in this region and encouraging democracy because Vladimir Putin would very much like to bring these former Soviet satellite states back under his thumb. So, exactly right. Well, we'll put you on our foundation mailing list, and, and anyone else that would have an interest in that part of the world, uh, we'd be glad to keep them informed and, and uh, add them yeah. to the mailing list. And, and it's rumsfeldfoundation.org, correct? Yes. Okay, exactly. terrific. And I also encourage people to follow up, as you did, and look at rumsfeld.com website, because there are literally thousands of memos there that... that uh, that are really part of history. Yeah, and, how many memos do you went on during that period? How many memos do you think you've written in your lifetime? Are we talking millions, hundreds of thousands? Well, when you're 83 years old, you ought to cut me some slack. <laughs> That's probably okay for me to have done that. Yeah, thing. <laughs> I use yeah. a dictaphone and uh, and and dictate these notes, and I have it sitting right here on my desk and. Uh, then it gets typed up, and, and then it gets digitized, and there it is. So you're not a big email guy then, huh? Oh, personally, no. We Obviously, our office uses a lot of email. And I, I, if, when I do emails, and I do use a computer, uh, I do very short ones. Um, uh, you know, they're, my, my emails are generally about four or five or six or eight or ten words. Okay. And and what was it? Yeah, there was a, when you left uh, as Secretary of Defense the second time around, I guess everyone used to call your memos snowflakes. I sent a, a final snowflake uh, to the people in the Pentagon and it said the blizzard is over. <laughs> well, I'll ask you one more question. During the confirmation hearings for Secretary of Defense in 2001, uh, someone asked you a question that you said was the best question that was asked the whole time during those hearings. They asked you, what do you worry about when you go to bed at night? I'll ask you the today the same question. These days, what do you worry about when you go to bed at night? Well, back then, I think my response was, I worry about our intelligence. And today, when someone asked me, What's the gravest threat facing us? And and the naturally the things that come to mind are cyber war and terrorism and nuclear weapons and and these terrorism and these kinds of things. What really worries me though is the millions of people across the globe that are reacting and making individual decisions and the cumulative weight of all of those people's decisions things that are not reported in the press, they're not on television, uh, they're not dramatic. It's, it's the spouse of a policeman in Baltimore who goes up to her husband and says, 
look, you've been a policeman in Baltimore for 12 years. Isn't it about time we do something else? We're not getting the support of the government. Uh, policemen are being killed. They're not receiving the kind of support they used to. Yeah. Or it's the parliamentarian in uh, the Philippines who looks at what the People's Republic of China is doing in the Spratly Islands and building a, a major port and a major airfield on a reef and, and seeing that, that no, there's no reaction to what the People's Republic of China is doing there. They see Putin going into the Crimea, and they see no reaction to Putin going into the Crimea. And, and they make decisions, and they decide, well, there's a vote coming up. Maybe I'll vote tilting towards the People's Republic of China and, instead of towards the West or towards Japan or the Republic of Korea and, and Australia and that part of the world. So the, the people are making these decisions every day, and it's it's like magnetic particles. When when you create a vacuum, you move the, you move the magnets, and all the particles move in a certain direction. And and they they if if we create a vacuum in the world, nature abhors a vacuum, and it gets yeah. filled, and it gets filled by people and countries, and ideas and concepts and values that are not ours and not in our interest and and not supportive of the things we believe in and so the press and the and the television they talk about the the things that happen but they don't talk about the reaction to what's happening in the world and because it's micro not macro hmm. and i yeah. that's what worries me and and that's what i think if if i were asked in a confirmation hearing what i worry about the most it's, it's the fact that the world is not being attentive to all the decisions that sensible people are making in the interest, their interest and in the interest of their families and their businesses. Yeah, and it's a reaction to us. So if we don't lead, then we lose control of the situation, don't we? You well, bet. They point the other direction, like the, the magnetic particles, instead of moving <laughs> towards the United States yeah. and being interested in in what we recommend or what we favor or what we're trying to lead in a certain direction, they, they go in the other direction because they see the They look at the United States managing its economy on a failed bottle. Hmm. And wow. they have to conclude that the United States in 10 or 15 or 20 years is not going to be what it was in the last 10, 15 or 20 years. Yeah. Do you think that you're going to write a book anytime soon, another book? I think I'm going to write a book about Gerald Ford uh, oh. and and what a how fortunate the country was to have someone of his integrity uh, and and balance. That's uh, interesting. The only time we had a president who was never elected president or vice president. Yeah, and he, and he was the president that you were probably closest to, I think, right? Yeah, he was the only one who was a personal friend because we'd served in Congress together, and and then I came back and chaired his transition to the presidency and then was his chief of staff. Wonderful person. Yeah, yeah. And you were there for the Halloween massacre, as they called oh, it. Oh, my God. I was there for a lot more than that. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, yeah, by all means, uh, uh, if you end up writing that book and you go on book tour, I hope you'll uh, swing by again to talk about it. Terrific. I look forward to it. Well, Secretary Rumsfeld, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about Churchill Solitaire and the Rumsfeld Foundation and uh, your amazing career over the years. And thank you for your service to the country. 
Well, thank you, Ben. It's enjoyed visiting with you, and I wish you well and, and look forward to visiting with you again sometime. My thanks again to Donald Rumsfeld for coming on the program. And I'll tell you something that you probably don't know about Donald Rumsfeld, and it's something that he would never brag about himself. But when Flight 93 hit the Pentagon on the morning of 9-11, he didn't hightail it to some undisclosed location. Probably against the wishes of his security detail, he was right there on the ground at the western side of the Pentagon, helping carry victims out on stretchers. And I think that says a hell of a lot about the kind of guy he is. You can donate and find out more about the Rumsfeld Foundation at rumsfeldfoundation.org. And you can also support the foundation and our troops by going into the App Store on your tablet or smartphone and downloading Churchill Solitaire. I'll tell you, I've been playing it for a couple of weeks now, and it's a great way to pass the time. It's fun. It's good for your brain. And like I said, you'll be helping out our troops. So it's a great thing to do. I'll also post Amazon links where you can order Donald Rumsfeld's books, Known and Unknown, and Rumsfeld's Rules. Or if you want to listen to the audiobooks, you can download one of those for free with that special promotion just for our listeners at audible.com backslash kickasspolitics. Don't forget to subscribe to Kickass Politics on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review. I'd also appreciate it if you went on our site and filled out a brief audience survey. And please recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on social media. And if you really want to help us out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to our website and click the donate button. Follow us on Twitter at at kapolitics or visit Kick-Ass Politics on Facebook. And as always, I welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. On the next podcast, I'll talk with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning conservative political cartoonist Michael Ramirez about what makes good political satire, when is too soon, President Obama, sacred cows, and which politicians have been the greatest gifts to him comedically. Plus, he'll tell how one of his cartoons led to a not-so-friendly visit from the Secret Service. Coming up with political cartoonist Michael Ramirez in the next podcast. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.